I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> what do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Hey, Chris. Hello, Nick, and hello, everybody. We are back this week to talk about a very different John Carpenter movie, one that is uh, is a real, I guess, I don't know, how do you want to describe this, Chris? I mean, it's, it's a change of pace for sure. It's a genre that we haven't really seen before. Like, we're talking about 1984's Starman. Chris, give me the, the not the 30-second pitch. I always ask for the 30-second pitch. Give me the five-second pitch. What is Starman? Um, it's a romance film. It's a science fiction romance film. Um, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Fair enough. It is absolutely both of those things. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it, not because it's my favorite Carpenter film, although I think my opinion of it is very different from what I expected it to be. This is my first time seeing it, but I am excited to do the show tonight because it is a reunion of sorts. We are joined by a special guest who we've both known for a very, very long time. Welcome to the show, Brian Verderosa. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. So for those of you who don't know, for those of you who are not listeners to Talking Movies... I'm the reason you motherfuckers know each other. We, You are the reason we know each other. Um, you and I go back uh, about almost 20 years at this point. Uh, we studied film together in our uh, undergraduate college days. You and Chris met separately from that. And then for four or five years, we did a podcast together called yeah. Talking Movies, which evolved into a show called The Long Take, in which we continued Talking Movies. And here we are, the band is back together this is uh it's a real um you know it's a real reunion of sorts as i said so uh we're really happy to have you on the show so i'm gonna give the the 30 second brian pitch uh so we've already established what starman is um brian you to me are the guy who if i want to talk about howard hawks or michael curtis or basically any filmmaker from the golden age of hollywood you are the guy that i'm going to go to Uh, you have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge of film and and have since i've known you and you also have a, a particular expertise for the films of our generation like the 80s the 90s like i can never beat you in the movie game where we're trying to name actors i know directors you know people who were in movies and titles of movies and things like that better than i think anyone else i know in the world which i know a lot of film people so that is a, a huge compliment i think that's so, it's very nice to hear Thank so you're you. welcome um but yeah what, what what have i gotten wrong here tell our audience who are you and, uh, and what are you doing here i uh <laughs> I'm just uh, just I'm just a movie fan. I was raised on uh, the classics, as as Nick had said, and um, the '70s are my like weak spot because my dad's a big '40s, '50s, '60s classic, you know, classic westerns, uh, noir, that sort of thing. And then I got into my own thing as as growing up. So uh, 
just love watching movies and and that's why we call the show talking movies right we just wanted to see more and learn more and it's the the movie we're talking about today has always been one that my, uh, my father actually talked about very fondly and it just never wound i mean which is weird right i mean show your kid the r-rated the thing but don't show him the pg Starman. just doesn't doesn't compute uh but uh, that makes me like your dad a lot, actually. I've met your dad, and I, I like him anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think uh, you know I'm going to show my kid the thing first uh, before before we get to Starman. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself as a, a Carpenter viewer. Like, what are your favorite Carpenter films? Uh, where does he stand in sort of your overall ranking of directors? I mean, I, I've talked about it on the show a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not my favorite filmmaker. He's probably not even my top three <laughs> or my top five. And I'm just going back to one of our old bits, which was the uh, the pull quote. So, uh, so, 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 Precinct 13, the podcast, and, and it just says, "quote He's not my favorite filmmaker, Nick Arscalia. <laughs> not but, even my top five. <laughs> what? I mean, you know, I, in the process of doing the show, I mean, he's he's really kind of risen up in stature for me. And there are certain films that he's made that I love so much that when Chris brought this idea to me uh, last year, it was like, yeah, I absolutely want to do this. There's other movies that I haven't seen that I want to see. There's many that I'd like to see again. And, you know, we just finished a couple uh, weeks ago talking about The Thing. And in, in the process of seeing that movie again and talking about it, and I hosted a screening of it, uh, a few weeks back that you were at. Thank you for coming to that. Um, you know, it, it's just really helped me to appreciate uh, a filmmaker who doesn't need me, right? He's got a huge cult fan base and everything like that. But, you know, I, I, I would really put him up there with the best genre directors of all time. And even though I kind of knew that and I kind of knew how well-beloved John Carpenter is, uh, in the process of doing this show, it's really just deepened my appreciation. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm glad we're doing it. Anyway, I'm, I'm not shutting up about me. I want to hear about you. So uh, where do you stand on Carpenter? I, I, I've always I've always liked him. I've never had too much of an education about him when I was growing up. And I, you know, I knew who he was. I knew about Halloween, and I knew about Escape from New York. And I saw the latter uh, when I was very young, and and the former not until I was probably I think it was eighteen, maybe first time I saw Halloween. The thing, you mentioned Howard Hawks before. I mean, and the, the thing being a Howard Hawks movie, like what I like about Carpenter a lot is is win, lose, or draw for better or for worse, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's a movie fan. He loves movies. Like you can't say that about Hitchcock, right? Does Hitchcock love movies? Does Hitchcock go and feed himself on cinema when he's not planning his next feature? I don't think so. No, but that's kind of a generational thing, right? I mean, the, Perhaps. the filmmakers of his generation, they came out of the theater and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So they, they didn't have that background. But yeah, I mean, you were talking about the 70s earlier, right? Like that is the generation where filmmakers like John Carpenter and Scorsese and Spielberg, and they were raised in the cinema, mm-hmm. essentially. So they're always sort of paying homage to what they had seen growing up. And, and we see that now like, today with like Tarantino. And, and, and as you, you know, that's sort of Precinct 13 is Rio Bravo. And yeah. And uh, it's just he always is is doing that. He's always paying homage to stuff, which I like. And I have I haven't seen They Live. I haven't seen um, what's another big. I haven't seen The Fog. Wow. Um, okay. I hadn't either till we started doing the show again. That's why I like doing the show. But you know, <laughs> I liked vampires when I was fourteen years old. I don't know if that's going <laughs> to still hold up, <laughs> but. He, he he's always he's always having fun, and I think that that's um, that, that that shines through. So um, I'm I was I've always wanted to see this movie, and, and now I have. So 
We're going to talk about it later. Yeah, this is one of those movies that uh, I, I grew up in the video store. You know, we, we are from kind of the late VHS era, and this is something that I saw on the shelf a lot as a kid. And I don't remember it having a very cool cover. I mean, there were definitely movies that had much more explicit, lurid, like awesome looking covers. And this sort of looked stately and dramatic. And I was like, well, I'll see that someday. But I never got around to it either. So uh, this is my first time seeing Starman. Chris, had you seen this film before? I, I know, I, I think you had done the entire Carpenter filmography before we started the show, right? Yes, and this one was the only one that I had seen only once. Um, I wa- I purchased the Blu-ray for my collection, watched it one time, and that was it until this reviewing of it. Okay. So, wasn't terribly familiar with it. Just remembered little things here and there. And um, yeah, so I've seen it twice now. I was planning on saying this later, but I think it, now is a good enough time. I barely knew what this was about. But mm. you talk about the video story, you talk about you know, it, with that era of like looking at the covers and trying to like figure out what a movie is about and, and what, what, how is the artwork selling it. I thought this movie, I, I knew it was Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, and I knew that he uh, was an alien, and I knew that there was something about her late husband. So what I put together in my head <laughs> was that the alien is wooing this earth lady because he's so suave and sexy jeff bridges and so smooth (laughs) that is not what this movie is about so you thought he was an alien that came to earth in the form of jeff Bridges? okay so there's like a planet of jeff bridges is somewhere yeah but 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 specifically (laughs) that he was so cool and sexy and and jeff bridgesy that that is why this is a love story. It's not a bad premise for a movie. I, I actually would it's like... Not, it's not this movie. <laughs> it's not this movie, and we'll get to that later. But I would watch a movie about a planet of Jeff Bridges' is absolutely. So I guess we should probably get started on our discussion of Starman. We will be right back, and we will talk about what it actually is. Get ready. Someone is coming. Someone like no one she has ever known before. Can you clone a living organism from the hair of a dead man? We're hypothesizing a technology that's probably 100,000 years ahead of me. He has powers we cannot imagine, and the face and touch of the man she loved. I said greetings. What's the matter with you? All right, we are back, and uh, I, I don't know about you guys, I have a lot to say about this movie, and this was one, you know, as, as Brian was just saying, I didn't know a lot about it either, I think I knew a little bit more than you did, uh, I knew he wasn't from a planet of Jeff Bridges's, but, uh, you know, as far as, like, how this movie was going to play out, I knew it was a romance, uh, I knew it had a, a, an alien sort of angle to it, I didn't realize it was going to do some of the other plot stuff that it did, I mean, it's a very, very simple story, but this is a movie that comes basically right in this sweet spot of Hollywood science fiction from the early 80s where E.T. had been two years before this. Mm -hmm. So there was certainly a desire for people to check out science fiction movies that had a bit of a more optimistic tone to them that looked at extraterrestrials not as the invaders they had always been, but as, you know, potential friends and lovers and things like that. And uh, as Chris and I have talked about in our couple episodes about The Thing, that's one of the things that really hurt that movie for John Carpenter was that E.T. had come out a few weeks 
before. It's this very sort of warm-hearted, beautiful Spielberg movie about a, a little boy's relationship with an alien creature. And then you get the thing, which is just the most nihilistic, bleak, gory, <laughs> graphic, amazing, it's my favorite Carpenter movie, uh, film about an extraterrestrial come to Earth. So uh, certainly, you know, it, it the timing was not perfect for that film but afterward uh, there was definitely a, a moment there where that's kind of what science fiction was trying to do so I want to get into all of that but uh, Chris I'm going to leave it to you now so I, I asked for the five second pitch before give me now the the 30 second to one minute tell me what this movie is about right so Jeff Bridges um, basically comes down to earth in the form of the husband of Karen Allen's character, uh, who is she was recently widowed, and I don't know how to, how to really explain this part of it too well, but I, I know that the, the the U.S. government is making attempts to contact aliens to have them visit Earth. So, you know, the ship that Jeff Bridges' character is on gets that communication. Um, the uh, Voyager, and that, that's, uh, I mean, forgive me for not knowing my NASA history, but that all happened, right? The gold record and, yeah. uh, and the Voyager 2 probe. That's, re and, that's real. Like, yeah. I, that, I, okay. I, my eyes widened when that happened. Like, because that happened, I think, in 79. Right, but I didn't realize, I mean, I, I knew that was in our solar system, and it looks like the planet that it arrives at in the beginning of this movie is is outside of our solar system. It looks like Saturn, but it's not Saturn. Mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't sure. I, I knew like that was sort of the plan for Voyager, and they had those recordings of speeches and songs and things like that, like basically sure. a, a little, uh, you know, Cliff's Notes Guide to Humanity, and, and along with that kind of an invitation, like, hey, come visit us, which is probably a bad idea, because you don't know how friendly aliens aliens are going to be but that was sort of the uh i guess in the the carter era that was the way we were looking to the skies so yeah that's uh we actually get a response to that that invitation to come visit earth and um it it comes to earth in sort of a very traditional looking ufo type craft that crash lands as ufos always do and uh yeah i guess take it from there yeah and it's you know, there, there's I could get into more detail, but since I'm trying to do the bridge version here, I mean, we have Karen Allen's character. She's like she's watching a reel to reel of all this footage, um, you know, of her and her her recently deceased husband, and it's a really touching moment. And later on, um, you know, so, so Jeff Bridges is this alien, like basically is just kind of this orb, like is able to transform himself into a clone of her deceased husband and essentially he's there to just uh you know he's going to report back to his <laughs> his planet or whatever about earth and essentially has to get to um arizona within a certain period of days to get back to his ship so he in quotes in quotations kidnaps uh karen allen's character to take him back there um, and then the movie basically just becomes a chase because the government is trying to find him and they want to study him and analyze him and things of that nature. But at the same time, it's impossible for a romantic interaction to not blossom between Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges' character because he's a spitting image of her deceased husband. Uh, but he doesn't know anything. He's not, you know, he comes to Earth in the form of this alien that has to basically learn everything from scratch. Um, and that's a... <laughs> What do you guys think about the scene um, when he first 
is able to form himself um, as a human being in the living room there or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's so much I want to talk about. I, I, I was afraid that we weren't going to have a lot of material about this movie just because I hadn't seen this movie, but that's one of the things that I absolutely wanted to mention. Um, so he basically, he, uh, <laughs> it's it's... Any way that I describe it is not going to do it justice, but basically he goes through the entire life cycle of a human being or the first three decades of a human life cycle. He grows up from a baby to like full grown Jeff Bridges in a matter of like 60 seconds or something like that. And Karen (laughs) Allen's character, who is just a a normal woman who lives in a beautiful lake house and is missing her dead husband, is standing there and, and she walks into her living room and sees this very creepy looking baby on the floor that has sort of a distorted not very human looking face and it kind of turns right toward the camera and these are all practical special effects Roy Arbogast uh, Carpenter's usual guy did these and um, I was kind of shocked about how good it looked um you know it's 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 a weird and uncanny and creepy and kind of disturbing scene where this baby grows up into a full-grown man we see it like for a while in kind of a child stage and she's just sort of standing there uh mouth agape looking at this thing happen in her living room and i don't know i mean that was the first really striking moment of this movie to me i like the opening actually you know when we actually see the the voyager probe going through the cosmos uh we're hearing a little bit of the music that is you know meant to be sort of like what is on that gold record that accompanied the voyager probe i think it's a really neat sort of evocative opening but then this scene like just really you know my eyes were wide during this because i wasn't expecting that and it is like i said it's a little creepy and this is not a horror movie in any respect this is about as far from that as you can get in the carpenter canon but uh it's this moment of just um like weirdness, uncanniness, and uh, and and it's played totally straight. It's not played for comedy, and I don't know. Like, did you guys enjoy that moment? Because I really did. I was more just kind of shocked the first time I saw it. I was like, "Oh, we're going there," you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, but no, I definitely thought it was. Um, I mean, it's pretty impressive. I think you're right. I think it looks pretty good. Um, I, I didn't think it was cheesy or anything. I mean, it's definitely. <laughs> uh, a necessary thing to show um, for the for the plot point here, but yeah, I think you put it best. It it's it serves it serves a story point, um, or or it's or it saves us from something that you would normally need to kind of have there, right? And they never play that ghost angle, like oh, this is him coming back to life. So, I mean, it could be that, but we don't ever, you know, she never even sort of insinuates that, which is interesting. We should say before we get too far into the plot of this movie, um, this is a film that very much like the thing had a, a long development cycle. So I believe the original script was sold in the late seventies and just passed through a number of hands. A lot of uh, directors were attached to this project before John Carpenter, Tony. Scott was one of them. Uh, Adrian Lyon was another one. Went to direct Flashdance instead of doing Starman. So it's one of those projects that that had kind of a troubled history. And then E.T. comes out in 1982. Like it, it's a, another Carpenter film. I feel is is directly affected by E.T. Where you know whereas it kind of killed the chances of the thing in some ways. It it basically laid the groundwork for something like Starman to happen where this is kind of a uh, it's almost an adult ET it's uh, it's ET for grown-ups it's ET as an adult romance um a, a PG rated chaste i think very sentimental nice adult romance but it definitely has a sort of similar plot to that movie and does some of the same things that that film does interesting i think uh 
one thing I heard John Carpenter say in this interview um, when he's talking about ET that I thought was really funny is he he said it was like uh, it was like Lassie coming down to Earth or something like that <laughs> and and, and uh, you know in comparison to the thing like we were talking about before which is such a grim movie where it's like everyone is gonna die and there's there's no way to escape um, but yeah I didn't know about the uh, quote unquote development hell this movie was in i guess just a lot of behind the scenes drama sorry the um i believe some of the writers who worked on drafts of it later on were not given credit for it i mean it just it passed through a lot of hands and um i think carpenter you know uh, unlike certain things that carpenter did he actually really wanted to do this project and he saw it as, as as i was saying earlier a change of pace and he wanted to kind of prove to the Hollywood establishment that, hey, I'm not just a genre guy, right? Like, I'm not just making gory horror movies. I'm not just sort of doing these sci-fi action things. Like, I can tell a, a human story. It happens to be a human story with real sci-fi elements to it. But um, I think Carpenter was looking at this as as a way to basically make a, a type of film that he had never made before. And, um, you know, as Brian was saying earlier, Carpenter was a fan of classic Hollywood. He kind of patterned some of the, the interaction and this on like those classic romances like it happened one night where these couples are kind of thrown together and and come to fall in love over the course of a couple of days of adventuring and incidents and movie stuff and so you know much like his hero Howard Hawks he just wanted to prove that he could do that genre as well as uh, as you know siege related action movies and and horror and stuff like that. The cover also does not let you know this is a road movie. No, no, and that that's the thing I was I, saying earlier. I, I, I didn't know that he, about it at all. I thought he hangs out at this house with her Me too. the whole time. And like that's not at all what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it doesn't waste any time at all, by the way. Like, everything we've talked about so far is the first five minutes of the movie. Um, Chris, I'm with you. I really like the scene. Uh, like, we meet Karen Allen's character, Jenny, when she is watching a film. What's of, your name? Of her, Jenny, Jenny Hayden. Thank you. Jenny Hayden. Um <laughs> She's watching a film of him. They're singing together. He's out, like, shooting a gun in the backyard. He seems just like a really fun, nice guy. She's got a little tear in her eye. She's got a glass of wine in front of her. I found that very moving. Um, mm-hmm. This movie, like, I'll put a few of my cards on the table here. Um, this movie is incredibly sappy, but... I kind of liked that about it. Um, this movie is extremely earnest. It wears its heart on its sleeve through the entire running time. There's very little irony or cynicism here. It's uh, it's sort of a very, very classic romance. And I don't know. I, I mean, there's a part of me who, who finds that very cornball. And then there's a part of me who really likes that. And I, I think the part of me who really likes that uh, eventually won out in the end. But uh, but from, from some of those opening scenes, I could see maybe a, a carpenter fan at the time if you sort of were weaned on stuff like assault and precinct 13 and escape from new york and the thing you'd be like what the hell is this happy crap it's like when you want to go see the straight story yeah 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 <laughs> well i i think a big part of that and he was actually mentioning this in an interview i saw with him is um you know there's a, a fear of being typecasted as a filmmaker and at this point in his career i mean there were so many halloween fanatics and as we discussed in our episode on Halloween, when that movie v- first came out, it was initially met with really negative reviews, and he had already moved on to start filming Elvis uh, with Kurt Russell, which is probably a largely forgotten about picture because it was made for TV. So he had sort of already proved that he could make a different kind of movie and do a movie about someone 
but this was um this was definitely a big break from all the other movies leading up to this point and i think a big part of it was him just trying to prove like i can do films outside of the realm of sci-fi horror and yeah i totally agree with you nick like this movie is sappy as hell um but i mean damn it if i didn't have a tear in my eye at the end of this thing you know what i mean i was just like <laughs> i did too and and you know i i didn't love love this movie i mean there are some things about it that i found really off-putting and just sort of not that they just didn't work for me i mean I don't know. We'll we'll get to those as we move along. But yeah, by the end, I was I was definitely moved by it, and uh, and the closing scene I thought was perfect, uh, almost in every way. Um, you know, this was in a lot of ways just a swing for the fences. Also, I mean, it's a PG rated movie. It's in a genre, as I was saying, that was really hot at the time. Um, it's got this performance at the center of it. Uh, this was the only, I believe, Academy Award nomination in an acting category for a Carpenter movie. Brian, you would know that better than I would. I I had to ask myself halfway through, I'm like, somewhere in my head, I think Jeff Bridges was nominated for Best Actor for this. Yep. Can that be real? <laughs> and I Googled it, and it it's true. Yeah, so I, I mean, this is, it's, it's a very mainstream movie. I mean, this is meant to be sort of a... a open in as many theaters as possible take the family to see it uh there's a sex scene but it's a very very chaste sex scene there's not much violence there's a little bit of cursing which i thought was actually very funny cursing in it and you know it's uh it's very different from some of the other films he'd done which were much grittier and and much more sort of going for that almost punk rock kind of feel um there is nothing punk rock about this movie at all (laughs) true that true that um so I wanted to point out here, one of my favorite actors in the movie is, um, I hope I'm getting this right, he looks so much different on the IMDb page, but is it Charles Martin Smith? Yes, mm-hmm. and, and he looks so different on the IMDb page. I had to check, <laughs> like, I had to really take a close look at that. I was like, is that, it? Could, because, okay, most of, most people from our generation, if you know Charles Martin Smith, what is the movie you know him from, Brian? The Untouchables. Yes, amazing role in that film his death always gets me uh really hard spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen brian de palma's amazing 1987 film the untouchables one of my all-time favorites uh and and he is absolutely great in it uh went on to be a director um Charles Martin Smith was the director of a number of, like, he does family-themed movies. He's still working. He did uh, Dolphin Tale. He did Air Bud. So he had sort of a career outside of acting also. But I was so excited to see him in this movie. I didn't know he was in this. And his He's character great. is is really likable, actually. So he is yeah. Sherman, who is a, uh, he, he works for SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. He's hired, uh, I mean, he's sort of, he doesn't work for the government, but the government kind of contracts him out to investigate uh, extraterrestrial sightings kind of thing. But he's much nicer than a, a sort of government agent would be because they end up being the villains of this film and he's not really on their side. And it's one of the first scenes we see him. Well, first we see him at home just watching a basketball game, kind of hanging out. And I'm like, yeah, I like this guy already. But a couple scenes after that, there's a, a soldier, an army soldier that's with him on the scene of, I believe it's the crash of the UFO. And he says to him, are you attached to national security? And Sherman says, not very. And uh, that made me just sort of love him right away. So he's uh, he's part of the system, but he's a little bit outside the system. And, um, you know, he's he's an interesting I guess he's kind of a foil for the main characters of this film, but he's not a villain. And I think we know that right from the get go. We know he's, he's a rebel. Gonna, 
Yeah, he's a rebel. He's not going to go rogue and try to kill this alien who uh, looks like Jeff Bridges. Yeah, he likes really big cigars, too, apparently. He, he's always trying. He only gets it lit like once. It's sort of a running <laughs> gag that he like he puts a cigar in his mouth, then someone tells him something shocking, and he never gets to light the cigar. Fun little right. bit there. Right. So the plot point here is Jeff Bridges. We got to get Jeff Bridges to the to the rendezvous point or else he's going to die. Um, within yeah, the and, and what period. is it? Winslow, Arizona that he's going to? I don't know. If it's Winslow, because, Chris, but... when they said that the first time, I was like, wouldn't it be better if he was going to Benson, Arizona? Oh, snap. Like, I guess it they would just be didn't way better. Easter eggs like that back then. But that would have just warmed my heart. But, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to just assume that that's actually where they were going. Brian, you've been oh wanting to say something for like five minutes. No, here. no, no. I, 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 I just this movie does not land for me. OK. Um, It was it's. There's so many pieces in it that I'm like I I enjoy every time I'm looking at Charles Martin Smith on screen. I also don't think his character or that s- subplot of villains needs to be in the movie at all. Um, we don't know why this alien's even here, or I mean I know that's part of it, right? Is 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 the unknown, but like he. He doesn't have a purpose other than to just leave. Well, right. He's supposed to be studying Earth and humanity and and sort of responding to this invitation. But if he only ever had three days to do that, like, does does his civilization expect him to learn everything and then just go home and file a report in three days? It's very weird. I mean, so the, the idea is he crash lands very, very far away from his pickup point. And so the road movie setup is that they have to get to Arizona from from like northern California to get him to his handler. I thought they were in Wisconsin. It is no, Wyoming. Is it Wyoming? Or no, I'm thinking of a different movie. I I, I thought I, they I, said I, California. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting it mixed up because, let me, not to get off topic, but have you guys heard of a movie called Paul? Yeah. Yes. Movies, that movie was a lot of fun. Reminded me a lot of this, yeah. Or this right. reminded me so, a lot of that. Someone had told me when I was telling them that I was watching this to watch Paul. So I just watched Paul last night, which oh, I, really? I really enjoyed. And I'm getting some of the facts mixed up. I think that one starts in Wyoming, maybe. Well, anyway, he his saucer crashes and he uh, takes on human form. And then immediately it's like, all right, I got to get to my pickup point. So you're absolutely right about that. And I agree also the uh, the antagonists in this movie don't really work for me at all. Um, I like Charles Martin Smith's character. But like even he doesn't ever really learn anything about this alien like that guy's life is dedicated to seeking out extraterrestrial intelligence and here it is right in front of him and he never gets to fulfill that at all and the little that we do see of what he can do is like it's a wow factor in the moment like he's got these little orbs that like like (laughs) i'm so glad you used that word because like i was trying to to come up with my own synopsis of this movie so like he's got these magical balls and (laughs) he 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 uses his magical balls to uh to bring people back to life and things like that not since superman 2 has any character (laughs) just had no rules as to what their powers are um you just don't know his magical balls Yeah. There is so many things you can do with those magical balls. Yeah, and uh, and Karen Allen gets one at the end of the film. She, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that scene when we get to it. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, there's a very high bar for entry here to uh, to like this movie because it's a very simple plot, and I think it 
you know, if you're looking for sort of laugh out loud comedy here, you're not going to get that. And if you're looking for a story that you can't poke some holes in, as as we were just doing, you're not going to get that. Um, but where I think this movie really works is just sort of in the the little moments where we see these these two characters from vastly different worlds, literally different worlds, interacting with one another. Um, the way, you know, basically we see Starman. I, I mean, he's never really given a name, right? I mean, he's, no. he's Scott. He's taken the form of Scott. We'll just call him Starman. We see him grow up physically early on in the movie in the scene we were just talking about. And then we sort of see him grow up emotionally and intellectually as a human uh, through the course of the rest of it. And it was really that stuff that worked for me. Um, You know, there are scenes along the way, like where he brings the deer back to life with his magical orb or his magical balls, Um, you know, and and there's just something about the tenderness of that moment. I mean, it's kind of a silly scene and and what precedes and follows that I found a little silly. But uh, but that one sort of moment of uh, just just him showing kindness to a a creature that he doesn't understand. It was stuff like that that really got to me. and, uh, and, And so for me, the experience of watching this movie like I felt a lot like Jenny Hayden where I wasn't sure what to think about Starman at first and I wasn't sure if I liked Starman at first and by the end he had sort of won me over and uh, and I was really sort of you know my heart was kind of swelling by the end of this movie but I, I agree with you I mean there's a lot of things along the way that it's like can we buy that? I mean, even even by the standards of this genre and these types of films, there's a lot of things that are, are just either silly or underdeveloped or kind of just don't work. I mean, I think it's leaps that it doesn't quite earn. In We go from her being terrified of him to reluctantly, you know, at gunpoint at one point. You know, he doesn't even understand what the gun is, but she, but she does. Um, you know, driving him where he's telling her to drive and trying to get out of it and trying to get out of it. And, and even at, we're at the midway point and it's the, it's the deer scene that kind of lets her let go of that. Right. But l- there's a big difference between, you know what? I'm not going to run away from this weird alien who kidnapped me, who is not my problem to, I love you. It's a big leap there. And we get there pretty fast. I agree with I I mean, you know, it helps that he looks exactly like her dead husband sure. that she's been pining away mm. for. Which, which is the key, the cornerstone of the movie, really. But he, he I, I, I always have this problem, right, of, of, of what I wanted the movie to be versus what it is. Sure. But he learns so much in such a short period of time. I wanted him to get to being able to run circles around people in conversation and physical ability and like almost becoming a superhero in this body but of course but the body's dying because he needs to get back home right having done nothing right and and i don't feel like that's established well either i mean at, at one point charles martin smith basically expresses to her almost like you know can we keep him kind of things like can't you see he's dying and he looks fine he looks like jeff bridges in the prime of his life (laughs) you know at least show him deteriorating a little bit he does in the following scene we sort of see him struggling when they're they're running away but up until that point yeah he looks perfectly normal i'm like oh maybe he can stay a little longer um i would like to comment that i think the part of the reason why the there's the whole element of you know, the government and the national security agency in this movie is because, again, that's a theme that we've seen a lot in John Carpenter movies, you know, the whole making the government kind of look bad, 
uh, people in positions of power, uh, the anti-authoritarian narratives that he he kind of subtly puts in in the films, and also uh, Nick, as we've discussed before, he had to have an excuse to have a fleet of helicopters at some point in this movie. <laughs> uh, which th- this this is the one that I'm telling you, man. Carpenter, you are so hung up on Carpenter and his love of helicopters, and this I'm movie just pays you, that off like better than anything else he's done. I, I learned a fact the la- uh, like a, a week or two ago that blew my mind. Mm. The word helicopter comes from the word helico and ter, P-T-E-R, like pterodactyl. Mm-hmm. It's not heli and copter. It's helico okay. and ter, P-T-E-R. I like that. Yeah. The silent P in uh Silent P. What does helico mean? No, uh, of, of the sky. So a pterodactyl of the sky. A helicopter is is a pterodactyl of the sky, <laughs> as opposed right. to a pterodactyl. I don't, I don't have the I don't have the def- You know what? We brought. Why don't you, you do ne- Why don't you do the next show without for me? your Latin expertise? <laughs> and you just left us hanging. There. No, but I mean, do you guys? You guys, that thank you for that very interesting point, Brian. But uh, I, I mean, do you guys see where I'm coming from with that? Like that's something that we've seen in his movies, and I think that. That's kind of why it's it's a relatively big part of this film. Uh, it is, but I don't think it's a big enough part. Like, I agree with you. I mean, it certainly plays into some themes that he's been working with right from the get-go, right? Like, since Dark Star. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, what exactly is their purpose? Like, I, I feel like, aside from Charles Martin Smith's character, aside from Sherman, like, they're just kind of faceless, and they, they sort of turn on this alien out of nowhere and just decide, all right, we need to kill him now. We need to capture him and experiment on him. And, you know, and it almost feels like they're doing that because that's what the government just does in these movies right like it's never really established that he's any kind of a threat at all like um interestingly enough like when you look at imdb and and sort of things that compare this to other movies like you know similar films to this one that comes up a lot is the day the earth stood still but like the military is just sort of much better developed in that movie and like the idea that this alien might be a threat is better expressed there um here it's just kind of like oh yeah we should probably hate him because he's not from this world and we just don't understand anything we hate everything we don't like so let's kill him uh, am, am, am yeah. i wrong about that is that fair to say Again. no i think i think that's fair uh in, i mean the day the earth stood still we're we're constantly wondering what could be and we, you know you know Klaatu is just sitting out there primed to strike or not we don't know right and they know almost nothing about what you know scott is like just take the word of yeah he died but I, I i guess he's back can we do that no maybe they can okay let's go find him well they're basing it on the one incident i mean you need this scene i think it's a very mm-hmm. clunky scene but uh the van that they run off the road and then he uses his powers to basically um is it tim robbins is that tim robbins in that scene no the guy with the curly hair and the no. van he looks a lot <laughs> Like a young Tim Robbins. I can see it, but no. I thought it was him. Um, So he basically threatens Scott slash Starman, and and he... Starman... You call him Scott Man? Scott Man. Scott Uh, Man. He uses his powers to basically disarm him, and then that guy runs off to the police and tells them about the incident. So they know he has some, some... powers they know he has the potential to be dangerous but literally they're taking the word of this drunk asshole who just sort of got into an altercation and and that's what they're basing this whole thing on 
Wait a second, though. Is that the scene where he makes the tire iron, like, really hot in his hand? Yeah. And then this explosion happens in his... He, he uh, gives him a minor burn. I <laughs> I really like that scene, man. Uh, <laughs> I liked it better when I thought it was Tim Robbins. It's <laughs> so not Tim Robbins, but anyway. Uh, yeah. I wanted, when he was driving away, I wanted Starman to be like, get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Yeah, so he's got these magic balls, and you know that's, that's like there's a there's a. You guys, I, I really liked this movie, but you're you're. Taking I never it. once thought oh, of the magic balls. Um, I, I thought are... orb from the beginning. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Go ahead. No, I, I'm just sad I missed out on 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 all those jokes in my head. Oh, um, they were running through my head like through the entire viewing of this movie. So, it's, so it says something that I liked it as much as I did. Yeah, and so, I mean, if we're trying to go through the, I mean, basically, so Jenny is, you know, there's a scene towards the beginning where she teaches him how to drive and use credit cards and things of that nature. Um, I think that the scene where he's driving is pretty funny where he, you know, he floors it when the light turns yellow and there's that, that crash, you know, it's like, she's like, what are you doing? And she's freaking out and he's like, like oh. I learned it from watching you. Yeah, yeah, like stuff like that's you know pretty cool. The earlier scene where they're in the car is uh, it, it's that scene where she basically runs through the yellow light that turns red. Just before that, she puts the wipers on, and the way Jeff Bridges' eyes follow the wipers just for a couple seconds there, like I, I like stuff like that. I mean, it's this performance is fascinating. Um, you know, I I thought of him throughout this. I hadn't read this yet, but I was like, oh, it's it's very. He looks like a bird, right? Like the way they sort of like dart their heads around, and then I was reading some background on the film, and that's actually what he based it on he sort of watched the way birds kind of look at things like the way they just like snap their head from one position to another and he kind of does that through the entire movie and it does give him this kind of otherworldly way of appearing and you know we're all familiar with Jeff Bridges we're all fans of Big Lebowski and and Crazy Heart and things like that but it's kind of interesting to see him being this very outlandish sort of character and and i think he you know i i feel like he earned that oscar nomination he lost to uh to f marie abraham correct yeah so you know uh, obviously that's that was a tough tough year but um i think he's really good in this i mean i can't i can't decide like to paraphrase tropic thunder you never go full alien (laughs) like (laughs) yes you know i i can't tell if it, it it I know, I know it's on the border between being like cartoonish and like absolutely silly. And it crosses that line a few times, you know, um, but the other, but, but I am watching him thinking this is someone from another planet. And, it, and that's the point. Right. So I, I guess job well done, but it's 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 very distracting. Like. See, I I think the performance is really good. I just think the structure of the movie, I mean, you know, the way he learns to drive as quickly as he does, I mean, it's... He should be able to do other things. There are major leaps that this character takes that we don't really get to see that are just kind of hand-waved away, and I think he has to sort of struggle against that a little bit, because, you know, I I mean, it's not too long after that where he's driving the car and she's sleeping. Like, you would never just sort of let an alien drive your really nice car. I I mean, it just... You've been driving as long as she has. I think you'd be able to sleep. I wouldn't trust. <laughs> I, you know, I don't maybe know, that's though, the man. point where you it, stop. It, 
but we're we're in the we're in the Carpenter universe here. I mean, if Michael Myers can drive a car in Halloween, then but see, I I thought of that it, right Bridges. away. <laughs> That's actually a good point, Chris, because like you know, people have a problem with Michael Myers driving the station wagon in Halloween. Wait, and, really? Yeah, that's a thing. Slashers don't drive cars. But wait, wait, we people people have a problem with that? Yeah. Did you not listen to our two episodes well, on Halloween? I listened to one of those episodes. <laughs> well, you missed the one where we talked about yeah. that. Well, if you think about it, it's a, it's a legitimate point, as we talked about on the show, because, I mean, M- Michael Myers, you know, goes to, uh, you know, the, the ward or whatever when he's like six years old. You he's know, locked so... in an asylum his entire oh. life and then all of a sudden has this ability to drive. Yeah, I guess I believe that oh, okay. Starman I, could I learn thought, that faster than he does. I thought it was like because of like obstructed vision or something. <laughs> <laughs> right, the the eye holes in that mask—they don't oh, give you any. Okay, peripheral. that makes yeah. all right. That makes sense as as a no, no, no. Okay, no. John Carpenter just doesn't care about showing you driving lessons. You know, it's just they're driving, and you just have to accept that. I mean, it's the way it is. It's not important. Well, it's a little important. I mean, it's you know there are <laughs> there are things that it's hurt. important if you want it to be important. Well, right. I mean, this movie is hard to swallow anyway, right? I mean, it is, it's a very high-concept movie, and, and Brian, like you were saying before, I think there's just things that don't particularly work in it, and, like, that's one of them. Like, you know, the way he, he remains kind of simple through the entire film, but he has this extraordinary intelligence. He's from, like, hundreds of thousands of years, uh, a civilization hundreds of thousands of years more advanced than we are. Um, sometimes we really see that. Sometimes we don't really see that. I mean, it's, it's a tough tightrope to walk there between him sort of being innocent and almost childlike and him being like a, a super like an artificial intelligence kind of thing you know i'm i'm gonna make a weird comparison uh it's a movie that we that i'm sure you guys have talked about a bunch um that nick you love and chris you can't watch uh, a ghost story okay the i told you once that at the end by the i hated that movie i think i i, I think i quoted roger ebert that i hate hate hated that movie and then by the end of it, I was kind of in. I was in enough to care when the last shot came. And in this movie, I don't buy their relationship at all. I don't buy it for a second. Ever. Wow. Okay. Ever. Wow. And <laughs> and the last shot got me. Yeah. Like yeah. The, like like I felt I, I felt the feels. But I didn't. But like, so like, like my heart was in it, but my head was like, "This doesn't make any sense." If uh, I'd like to comment on that, I think the, um, you know, when she says to him, "Will I ever see you again?" and he just says, "No," um, that's a good it's moment. A, it's a it's a combination of that and the great uh, the great main musical set piece here. By uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you Beach. mentioned. The music is fantastic in this movie. I hate to say it because we've been talking about how great Carpenter's own compositions are, but I think the music in this movie is phenomenal, and I'm kind of yep. glad it is exactly what it is. Yeah, it's very... I uh, love that theme. Yeah, the the theme, it's funny because like on the Blu-ray, if you just let it ride like on the menu screen, it just loops that over and over. Um, and of course, we've talked about this theme a little bit on the Carpenter anthology um, record. But it's a great piece of music, and I just think it's really effective there at the end, in particular, in that scene. And like I said, I'm not gonna lie, man i I cracked a tear, you know. Um, uh, so I see what you're saying, Brian. Though that's a good point. Like you're like, I wasn't buying it, but then the end was a pretty good scene. I mean, 
Um, well, it, I, it, I, I, I think works. it's I think it's Karen Allen elevating the material. I, I think they both are, and uh, and she's great. As we haven't really talked about her at all, um, you know, Karen Allen was this was sort of her time in Hollywood. Um, I think a, a lot of people really got to know her from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and she's this amazing female character in that movie you know as strong and as badass as indiana jones and she really holds her own with him throughout that film and she's playing sort of a much more sensitive character here and and certainly not as tough of a character but um you know because we established from early on this this void in jenny's life and she gets that across so well i mean she is she's not actively looking for love in this movie but she is missing this love that she had so i mean we're sort of predisposed to to want her to find love i guess and the way that she does i i don't think is always believable but but there are moments um my favorite scene in this movie is comes toward the end and it's just it's a sort of marriage of just like cinematography and acting and just a, a very understated moment where they're in the back of the pickup truck and it's it's a little bit after where um, there's a, a they hitch a ride with some i guess they're migrant workers or something like that and there's a lady in the back of the truck that has a baby so that establishes that whole plot point about them having a a baby um, and then there's a shot of just the two of them it's a two shot uh, they're framed sitting in the bed of this pickup truck they're like in the desert somewhere and it's kind of an overcast day and the wind is blowing through their hair and something about this moment they're they're just kind of having a conversation a very quiet understated conversation and I found that moment just like oddly like mesmerizing and beautiful and I think that's the point where this movie like a hundred percent won me over and you know that was the moment that let me get over all the stuff that came before it that I was kind of not crazy about and I'm not even sure what about that that is I mean it's something about these two actors and the way that they look at each other and and where the relationship has gotten to at that point set against this just amazing backdrop on this sort of overcast almost sort of ominous looking day and uh, and I, I just thought that was really profound and really beautiful and I'm not really even sure why I, I think I want to revise my statement I don't buy for a second that she's in love with the alien. I I think she, so. If, if I'm taking it kind of at face value, which I think is what the movie is doing, I, I don't think it goes much beyond. This is a face value kind of movie. Yeah, um, that you know they have de- developed a relationship, and she has fallen for him. I don't buy that. What I do buy is that she's just so desperate to hang on to any piece of her husband. Sure. And and she's gonna lie to herself and convince herself whatever whatever she's feeling she can project onto him, and the, any part of what she's really saying is just tied to what she wants that she can't have. So you don't think it's sincere? You don't think she loves Starman? She loves Scott? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, let me ask both of you this question then. What is his feeling about her? Like, what is it about her? Is it just because she's the only human being that he really gets to know over the course of this movie? D- define uh, no. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, in the biblical sense and otherwise. Yeah. Well, I think that point is kind of made in the movie a little bit where it's like, I, I think he's kind of emotionless to begin with but there's a scene there's a pretty good scene when they're um in the motel room and he's explaining how he absorbs everything and just memorizes everything that he sees everything that he touches um and i think that kind of 
helps develop like some kind of emotions in him because like the next scene is him watching the TV and he's tapping the different, you know, he's tapping the screen and it's changing the channels. And he, you know, he sees that, that scene of, you know, the two lovers on the beach and stuff like that. And then he like goes over to, um, you know, to kiss her while she's lying down in bed and then someone knocks yeah, at the door and li- tells little him, creepy, you know, wasn't it? That that scene kind of skeeved me out a little bit. Yeah, but that that but, moment in that scene, I liked that scene overall. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, I just ask, ask first, uh, right? So I don't know. <laughs> ask first, yeah. Scott man needs a needs a whole uh, lesson on on um, that sort of thing. But I I don't know if that answers your question. But I don't think that he had any emotions for her at first. But I think because he is able to develop. And um, like I said before, just sort of absorb things uh, that maybe he actually does develop some emotions for her. Because in the end, why would he, you know, uh, give her a baby anyway? You know what I mean? Like he must have had some kind of feelings for her to want to leave her with with that because she could never have kids before. Right. Or I don't know. I mean, that's kind of what was alluded to that you know they 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 just couldn't. Um, I, I was very thankful that we didn't have to wait twenty more minutes to learn as an audience that she was pregnant. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> like I I put a baby in you. What? Yeah, it's real. <laughs> okay, yeah, but, there, but 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 there's the whole thing about how he explains that you know it will be the child of Scott. Um. But also of me. Oh, that was an right. interesting scene too. I mean, it's yeah, it's like a weird thruple kind of situation where it's it's both Scott and Starman who are that baby's father. Uh, he explains to her a little prior to that just about his planet and what his his civilization is like, and he basically says what makes them different from human beings. Like they all get along, and there's no violence, there's no war, and everyone has everything that they need. It's uh, you know, it's a planet run by Bernie Sanders or something like that. But what he I'm sorry. Good one. <laughs> um, what he kind of suggests to her is that he's fascinated by humanity that uh, because they're just more interesting. Like certainly they're flawed, but also there's diversity there that that he doesn't have on his home world. And you know, people are strange and people are crazy, but also people are really interesting. And I think she embodies a lot of that. Like I, I kind of find his love for her sincere because she's kind of a representative of humanity for him. And you know, she is everything. She's funny. She's She's sarcastic. She's, uh, you know, she shows toughness. She shows fear, like this sort of wide range of emotions. And and Karen Allen really gets that all across in this character. And so I think that's kind of why he falls for it. Like, you know, he's not going to love her because she's a beautiful woman because he's from an alien planet. So who knows what what his people actually look like. So it's more just the, you know, she embodies all of these really fascinating qualities about humanity that he has such a short time to get to know. And so, you know, he kind of falls for her because she is it sort of all in one. And, you know, the rest of humanity that he encounters is not all that great. Uh, We've got those hunters uh, who are basically, they reminded me so much of the guys from Dumb and Dumber, the, uh, the (laughs) kick his ass sea bass scene. And, um, you know, they're being chased by the police and there's roadblocks. The, and the worst the, cops the militaries ever. Have, yeah, those cops hey, are assholes. Hey, let's take a shotgun to the, to the side of the car <laughs> where the guy we want isn't in. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, Isn't there that line like you're you're at your best when you're your worst or something like that? Yes. I'm 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 getting it. I'm butchering it, but well, it's just like they, they when they when yeah he says one thing I've learned about humanity is that they're at their best when they're at their worst or something like that. It's a, it's a quote. It's it's like a, a you know it's it's a quote about war. It's like war brings out the best of people and the and the worst of people. You know, right, and, and and his understanding of humanity before he arrives on Earth is is from that Voyager stuff, right? So it's these welcome messages, and it's like representative stuff, songs and and clips and things like that that are kind of the best of humanity. But that's not what he wants to see, right? Like he wants to see everything. You know, we are messy creatures, I think, as human beings, and so I think he sort of falls for that. Like it's not just like you know the the most important people in the world saying welcome to our planet. This is who we are it's not like our best music and our best sort of representation of ourselves but it's us and all our sort of flawed weird fucked up kind of humanity that that he sees in her and comes to love in her and also our food there's a lot of eating in this movie much like a ghost story a film that i just love so much david lowry's a ghost story uh there's an extended pie eating scene in this film and uh and shut up Nick. cherry cobbler later on there just is absolutely up. no comparison <laughs> One is a 10-minute scene. One is like a 10-second scene. Chris, have you seen A Ghost Story? I, cu- I couldn't get through it. I watched <laughs> oh, oh, wait. Did you not know that? That, that, he, that he... Yeah, he turned it off at the pie. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you gave it a shot. Yeah. One of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, but the, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I just... One of the things I do like about this film is, is some of the things that he Very on brand. That are so... You know, just human, like how good apple pie tastes. He chews with his mouth open, which is gross, but I like that scene anyway. I love that she's like, she goes into the kitchen without asking anybody and just standing there like, hey, got back way out of this place. (laughs) Oh, sure, honey. (laughs) Whatever you need. (laughs) That lady's like so mean, like two seconds before that, like she's yelling at him for using the word shit at the table and then like right after that she's like the nicest person ever like she's the most helpful side she character she wasn't yelling at him she was like all right you got some colorful language or she kind of she kind of had a puss on um i gotta say the the moment in the bathroom i was just looking through my notes over this film and one of the notes i had written down was alien watches up um that actor he he was on sons of anarchy the bearded guy who walks into the bathroom in that scene and is standing at the urinal and scott slash starman is kind of just standing right inside the door like watching him pee and it's a really awkward i think it's one of the funniest scenes in the movie and uh, then he learns the middle finger gesture that he uses a couple of times throughout the rest of the film and then there's a moment later uh, you know like I said the cursing in this movie made me laugh also it's it's very sort of chaste PG kind of cursing but Karen Allen says shit and he says define shit and I just kind of like that yeah I can't remember him in Sons of Anarchy but I guess uh, Jill just finished it and my wife rewatched Great show. It's, he, it's, his name is Mickey Jones. Okay. He's um, he's the uh, the the Memphis weed dealer on yes. Justified. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, I did not recognize him, but yeah, that is definitely him. But there's a there's a mo- there's a nice moment of tension in that scene because we know that he can't read, or he can he can't read yet. So she he, she's put the note on the on the. Um, on the mirror for help and he walks by it and she sees that he's walked by it 
and then he goes back in and gets it. Yeah. But like we we don't know that he we we know he can't read, but we but we don't know if he's done anything about it yet. And all of her hopes are dashed when it comes out of his pocket. Yeah. What, what's kidnapped or whatever. Yeah. I I the the whole she's being kidnapped thing. Like I'm not sure that that plot point works for me either. Like it it's I mean, he's never threatening toward her at all. I mean, he he's certainly weird and he's from another planet, whatever, but I don't ever get that sense that I mean, she goes along with him. She seems to do it very fairly willingly and then, you know, everything like for the first like 40 minutes of the movie or so, she's like I'm being kidnapped. Someone save me. And you know, there it never seems like she can't just get away from him. He's not gonna like even with the gun. There's a I think a very tense moment where he picks up the gun and points it at her, and then just ejects the clip. Which I don't know how he would know how to do that or what that means. And I was kind of afraid he was gonna shoot her just because he doesn't really know how guns work at that point. He's he's just seen the film of of actual Scott firing a gun earlier in the film. Um. So I I don't know like. What do you guys feel about that? Like, is that... Did I just miss something there? Are you no. saying, like, why, why he did it? No, why she sort of keeps using that word kidnapped and... and How else would you define it? If, if, that, if that happened, if you were just kind of thrown into a, a vehicle with a replication of your wife... He kind of just asks her for a favor <laughs> and she does it, though. Like, I mean, she could easily put the kibosh on that whole thing back at her house, but instead she gets in her car with him and it's like, yeah, we'll go to Benson, Arizona or whatever. Benson, Arizona. God, that would have that would have definitely made this movie a notch better uh, if it just made that one change. I think every movie could be improved with Benson, Arizona in it. Uh, Brian, that's the theme song from Dark Star. You should see that film someday. It's I have seen that film. We've We've talked about it. Oh, all right. I don't know about the the kidnapping aspect of it, but I will tell you this much: um, if I'm ever going to Vegas, I'm bringing this guy with me, right? <laughs> oh boy, I hate that scene. That that might be my least favorite scene in the movie because it's so cheese. Yeah, I do like. Um, you know, I lost cut, my wallet. <laughs> the cut to the Cadillac in that scene is kind of fun, where uh, you know he hits that jackpot and like immediately cut to him pulling off the lot in a Cadillac. But I feel like. There's a Vegas scene in every road movie. Like this, this movie does a lot of things that every road movie does, and that's a very cliched scene where the characters run out of money, they end up in Vegas, and they find some way to to you know hit the jackpot and get the money that they need. And I don't know, like, it cheapens Starman the the character for me a little bit that he can just sort of you know tap a slot machine and uh, and win a, a shit ton of money doing that. He has many many powers, and s- some are touching a TV and making it change, and some are bringing <laughs> creatures back to life, including humans. Because she's totally dead, right? Yeah. And yeah. so yeah, is the deer. Uses, but he, the deer is dead uses, and decomposing. Uh, does he not use one of his magic balls on her, though, to bring her back to life? Yeah. He's, he, he's using them left and right. Like he, We see him in the beginning. It's probably like 10. He's got a handful, yes. You know? Um, but he can use them for seemingly anything he wants. But he can only use them once? I think I he guess. can only use them once. I think that's why. Otherwise, why not just have one magic? He uses break? one of the balls to make a map. Yes. 
Right. Oh, a, a map with perfect borders drawn out. Like that scene kind of threw me a little bit too. It's a cool special effect. There's a lot of green screen early in this movie and it's kind of very, or blue screen probably at the time. And it's a little bit obvious, but he projects this map of the United States and you can see like the border lines of all the states mm-hmm. on it. Like, why is that important? Wouldn't you want like a, a highway map so you could see how you're getting to where you're Also, going? she's not too sure which one's Arizona and which one's New Mexico. Well, I'm not too good at geography either. Uh, it should be labeled, right? If he's got the technology sure. to make that map with the borders drawn on it, you couldn't just label the states? Now that we've somehow gotten back to the beginning of the movie, did <laughs> when he is the blue like light, didn't that remind you of the force from the Evil Dead? Yes. Well, sure, the way it floats over the water there. And and like going up to the cabin sort of thing. Like, yeah. Yeah, kind of looking in the windows. It's a little creepy. It's a little, you know, I mean, if you didn't know what this movie was from the beginning of this movie, you might think it's going to be another thing, right? Right. If you, if you if you turn yeah, if you turn this movie off after the first 12 minutes, you might think it's a horror movie. A- after having seen him transform and like the and, and that kind of body horror stuff and Yeah. I mean, that that scene is a body horror scene. That is straight out of the thing or something like that. But then this turns into the most sort of, like I said, heart on sleeve romance it could possibly be where it is just wildly earnest for the rest of the movie. So, um, yeah, it's again, it's it's Carpenter showing a lot of range, though. Like one of the notes I made about this is the character interactions in this movie, like we don't really see that in anything he's done up to this point. Like there's a lot of scenes of people just hanging out, talking, getting to know each other. I mean, Carpenter's output up until now is, is, you know, up until Starman is basically just action, action, action. You know, there are movies that are so fast paced in in every respect. And, you know, even the, the ones that start out a little slower, like Halloween and the fog, we don't have these sort of hangout scenes. And there's so much of that across this movie. And I mean, I, I feel like by the end, it, it really, I don't know, I, I am moved by these two characters and their relationship, and I like their interactions a lot. And like I said, my, my favorite scene in the movie is kind of just them sitting next to each other and enjoying each other's company in the back of that truck. Yeah, if, if anything, it, it really just kind of definitely adds to the, uh, the, the, the just the diversity and the, the assortment of movies that... that that uh that carpenter's made i mean this is not one of my favorites um it's it's not like i don't think it's ever going to be a go-to for me but i can definitely appreciate it like i don't think it's a bad movie by any means and it was uh you know kind of comforting to see that overall um just as far as public reception is concerned i mean it got some really good reviews although again this didn't really kill it at the box office by any means um that's a formula that i don't think he really ever figured out um because it's i mean it's obvious when you look at his movies but i mean this sucker's sitting at like 85 percent rotten tomatoes um this is a, a kind of a beloved picture of his for the most part but it's not it's not one of my favorites well i'll tell you what it really suffers in comparison to is et and, you know, I, I think that's just because Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter are very different filmmakers. And, and Spielberg is the sort of childlike wonder guy. And John Carpenter is the gritty, like I said, punk rock escape from New York, the thing, dark star kind of guy. And, and 
I don't think Spielberg could pull off as good a horror movie as Carpenter has so many times. And, and you know, this is not really his forte. I mean, he handles it well. I think it's an effectively directed movie. I think most of his choices are good choices. But when you look at this up against Spielberg's E.T., which is, you know, such a, a perfectly formed movie and, and that script by Melissa Matheson is just so good. Do you guys agree with me on that? I mean, whatever we want to say about Starman, like E.T. is a fantastic mm-hmm. four-star movie, right? Yes. Okay. Do you want to take this opportunity to tell everybody how much you hate Super 8? I really don't like Super 8, but that's a whole other conversation okay. for a whole other day. All the stuff about filmmaking in Super 8 is really great, though, and I find it really enjoyable. All the monster stuff is garbage. Maybe okay. Carpenter could handle that a lot better. Um, but I think, you know, particularly this comes out two years after E.T. People are still, their hearts are still aglow with the the love of, uh, of that friendly alien and his relationship with Henry Thomas. And this movie can't help but sort of be looking up to that, and, uh, and it never quite reaches the level of just uh, emotion and you know it doesn't have a scene like the climax of E.T. on the bikes it's such an iconic movie scene but it it has this what's supposed to I think feel like something like that yeah it shoots for that certainly I just don't think it quite hits it Chris was it seven or eight hundred helicopters Um, (laughs) so many helicopters (laughs) all the the choppers and they're running away and and like you know this is your last warning you've been shooting at them the whole time yeah (laughs) Yeah, they're terrible shots, which is good. They're like Star Wars stormtroopers. I love that ending sequence, by the way. The uh, the way the his planets, uh, you know, his his. I don't know, fellow aliens, whatever you want to call them, the ones that are picking him up, um, the craft that they arrive in that sort of looks like a big silver ball with a ring around it, like his planet. I thought that looked really good. Um, I was kind of afraid, you know, this movie being from the period that it's from, uh, I thought the special effects were not going to hold up as well as they did. And I thought that was just a, a really visually stunning scene. And then you get the reaction shots of of Starman and Jenny, and they're sort of lit really interestingly. The, the whole environment gets it's blanketed in like blue and red light. And um, the visual design of that I thought was really, really cool. And in my notes right here, like I wrote that the ending sequence of this movie is perfect. Like that's where that score really just swells. And we get that really touching final moment, you know, tell the baby about me kind of thing. I mean, how can you not be moved by that? I just think you're not going to be moved by that the way you are by the, the closing scene in E.T., which is maybe one of the greatest scenes in a family film of all time. So it's it's you're shooting for a real like... Uh, like as good as it gets kind of thing. I think an interesting factoid about this movie is that Michael Douglas's name is attached to it. That's he was a producer, yeah. He, I believe it was his production company that bought the script in the late 70s and, uh, and spent all that time developing it. I'm surprised he didn't make a cameo here. I'd like to see Michael Douglas in this movie somewhere. He could have played not Tim Robbins. Oh, that'd be awesome, man. That, that That's perfect. Yeah, uh, I was just reading about that, how... Yeah, I guess, I guess it just this guy. Um, it just goes to show that you never know. I mean, look at the difference there. ET makes basically eight hundred million dollars. Starman twenty eight million US. Um, but again, here's Roger Ebert with three out of four star. I mean, I don't know. You know this. It's 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 we it's a weird choice I think because for him to have the experience he had with the thing, you know, and then to kind of have a a small rebound with the Christine job to go back to the straight sci-fi movie again. I just think it's sort of an odd choice, but whatever, you know, I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day, science fiction films were really big at the time. Like you mentioned, I was just reading here that uh, this came out 
debuting at number six, same week as David Lynch's film Dune, um, which I've never seen. It's a steaming pile of manure. <laughs> I, I haven't either because people have <laughs> basically told me exactly what but Brian just said. Denis, this this December. Denis Villeneuve, uh, talking movies favorite, Denis Villeneuve, who oh my was God. a great, great filmmaker and I think can probably handle that story really well, is going to try to very excited erase for it. the memory of David Lynch's Dune. But, oh man, D- D- Dune is one of the worst movies ever made. It's, Chris, it makes The Postman look like... <laughs> Casablanca. So many Casablanca throwbacks on this episode. I love it. I, I hope some talking movies listeners get to hear this because it's we're really getting the band back together. Like I said, and uh, and I've been enjoying it a lot. Um, I guess we should probably uh, any final thoughts on this film. Is there anything that we should address that we haven't talked about yet? I mean, I I think I've said my piece. I like this movie. I have my reservations about it, but you know what? I would watch it again. Um, it's like I, I am of two natures. I'm a very sarcastic, cynical person. That side of me hates this movie but i also i guess i'm a little bit of a hopeless romantic in some ways also and that part of me absolutely adores this movie so then that part of you should watch jerry Maguire. yeah whatever there's another throwback yeah, for I, you talking movies listeners I, my final thought is on it on it is i should say that this second time watching it it what really struck me the most is how much of a romance movie this is i had didn't really pick that up the first time I watched it because I don't know if I just didn't it just didn't um I don't know maybe my my watching my viewing just wasn't calibrated the same way but when I was watching it this time I was like man this is just a straight love story and now having seen all of his movies I mean this is this is the one you know this is this is his uh his romance movie basically and I'm fine with that you know it's it's just Personally, for, for my taste, it's very soft for, uh, especially for a John Carpenter film. Uh, I mean, it's very soft by any standard. I think. I mean, yeah. this is as as love struck a romance as I've ever seen. I mean, he really is like like I was saying before. He wanted to sort of make a classic Hollywood romance, and this feels like that for better and for worse. I mean, it is incredibly earnest, incredibly sappy. I mean, this is a love conquers all movie, and uh, and it really does. I mean, we are supposed to just sort of you know have our our hearts just swelling uh, like the Grinch by the end of this film and even if you are a Grinch you're supposed to feel that way and you know that's that's not Carpenter's thing and I think once he got past uh, he proved he could do it this is a well-made movie but I think it's like all right now I don't have to do this anymore I mean I love go ahead Chris sorry I'm just gonna say if anything it it did help launch Jeff Bridges' career I mean this is definitely gave him some uh I mean not that he wasn't like an established actor before but you know that's a pretty big accolade Academy Award nomination you never go full alien um <laughs> you never go full I, I don't know i i like jeff bridges before i mean he really goes for it here like i i think that's a thing that you can say about john carpenter with these actors is that he they must feel so comfortable with him on set i mean you, you know sort of the relationship that developed between him and kurt russell and uh, like he just he lets you sort of be exactly what you want to be and and he gives you sort of the freedom to take these characters and do what you like make them distinctive and make them definitive and uh and there's no half measures with uh 
Kurt no Russell half measures Walter <laughs> with uh, Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken and with Jeff Bridges as Starman. You know, it's like you want to act kind of like a bird. Go ahead, go full bird, and uh, and he does. And <laughs> and you know whether that works for you or not, you can't say that Jeff Bridges is not giving this movie a hundred and ten percent. And um, I I think he's really great. And and Karen Allen is. I wish we could see more of her. Uh, she, she was last seen by me in uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, returning to her role that sort of made her a household name. Uh, I, I loved uh, Ghost in the Machine when I was a kid. Did you? I've never seen it. It's It's got to be bad, but, <laughs> but I loved it. I don't know. I, I always thought she should have been a much, much bigger star, like a leading lady than she ever turned out to be. And, uh, you know, I, like this movie should have launched her, I think, much farther than it did. But um, it, it was great to see her in this and i don't know like what i kind of like about the two of them as a screen couple also is that neither one of them is like the most beautiful glamorous person you've ever seen they're like the best looking sort of normal people you can it's, see it's called regular it's called regular person hot they're regular person hot both of them uh and and very much i mean she the camera loves her in this movie like there's a lot of shots where her eyes are just sparkling she's sort of like looking directly at the camera she's lit per perfectly um you know i this like she just makes a, a great heroine for a film like this and uh, and i think the two of them just make a, a really classic uh as and certainly that was the intention a classic screen couple brian final thoughts on this movie i think it's gonna be a two star for me out of four yeah wow yeah um i i just think that uh i mean you talk about, it, it's a romance it's a love story but the only, she only likes him for like thirty minutes of it, <laughs> like maybe a little bit longer. But like she's trying to get away, and then she's unsure. You know, like it. But I mean, you've seen a lot of the the sort of classic Hollywood oh, romances sure. where I mean that that's the rom com thing, yes, right? Where yes, these characters yes. kind of bicker and hate each other. I mean, they actually get along better than a lot of those couples they do, do through, they do, through they most do. of the movie. That's I, I get that's what you're unfair. saying, I, but I mean, you know, there's there's always got to be some antagonism <laughs> there. I Brian, will. What what we're looking for is is there anything you can appreciate about this movie? <laughs> well, he gave it two stars, not zero. It's true. It's true. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, to both of you for having me on. Um, it's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, we wanted to thank you for being on. Definitely come back and do this again sometime. I mean, pick uh, your. Uh, so, Chris, you tell me what what do you think I would enjoy more? Both I have not seen: Village of the Damned or Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you will definitely you will definitely like village of the damned more okay um, if i was betting man but <laughs> i almost feel like having you as a guest on ghosts of mars just because it would be a really funny conversation I think uh, both of those episodes are going to be a lot of fun. I, I mean, we've uh, we've covered a lot of Carpenter classics at this point. Some people feel Starman is, uh, you know, just sort of looking at like the Carpenter fan Facebook groups and things like that. I mean, there are people who think this is his best movie. Yeah, people love um, this movie. But also there are some who just won't even give this one the time of day and uh, and kind of just wanted him to return uh, to the, the genre stuff. You know, I, I did just think of one other thing I wanted to point out about it that uh, works against itself for me as a fan we were talking about this with Christine a little bit, is just how he just doesn't have his posse with him that I'm used to. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have Dean Cundy on cinematography. Um, we don't we don't have, like, Charles Cipher somewhere in the movie or, you know, anybody that, that, that was part of his team 
of people that he was with for you know his first half dozen films or so. And uh, that's fine. I mean, I know that when, when you start doing studio pictures that aren't, you know, this is a distributed by Columbia or whatever. It's not, it's not an independently made film. But I do kind of miss that. And what I like about his next few films coming up, like when we do Big Trouble and we do Prince of Darkness, we start getting back. And even uh, They Live, actually, we start getting back some of his, some of his older contingency. So, Keith David, long-awaited return right. of Keith David. Yeah, Damn I mean, right. he does sort of reestablish that a little bit. But again, I mean, he he makes these forays into studio films. And like we said about Christine, I mean, he he's good at it. Like, he could have just been this sort of journeyman director and just taken on these kinds of projects for years and years and probably, you know, had an even more successful career. Probably not as satisfying a career. He wouldn't have the cult fan base that he has now if he'd continued making movies like Christine and Starman. But I think he proved to the studios that, like, hey, you want me to play ball? I can play ball and I can make a pretty damn good movie. I mean, I'd give this three stars. I'm with Roger Ebert on this one. Um, I think it's it's perfectly fine. It's not my favorite Carpenter by any stretch, but I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. So, um, you know, now that he's got that out of the way, we can get back. We can get weird again with uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which we'll talk about on our next episode. Mm, Indeed. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so, so much for being here. We can't wait Thanks to have you back. Me. This, this has been a really fun reunion. Uh, just talking movies with you guys is something that I've enjoyed a lot. Uh, for those of you who would like to get in touch with us, uh, we've really, really been enjoying the messages coming in. So please keep sending them along. You can reach us via email at precinct13podcast at gmail.com, twitter.com slash 13precinct. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash 13precinct, and our website where you can download all of our episodes and subscribe to the show is precinct13.simplecast.com. We would love for you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That would help us out a lot. We'd appreciate it very much. And we will be back very soon to talk about Kurt Russell's adventures in Little China. Mm-hmm.